Right, our scripture reading this morning is from a familiar passage of scripture. It's uh, Philippians chapter 1, and uh, this is the Apostle Paul uh, writing from prison. And uh, so let me read those uh, four or five verses. You can follow along as I read. Here's what Paul writes to the believers in Philippi. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he makes this great statement, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart. And be with Christ, which is far better. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll jump into this passage this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, as we think about, um, the cross and what that means in our lives, as we think about how we are hopelessly and helplessly lost without you, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for the sacrifice that provided, uh, a uh, way for us to uh, have salvation. And Lord, we uh, we give you praise for that. And so we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning from your word. May we not uh, leave here without uh, your spirit speaking to us and uh, without life change in our life. Lord, help us to keep focused on you. Help us to keep our priorities straight. Help us to live for you. Help us to realize that dying is gain. Uh, may that truth be driven home to us today, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump into the book of Acts, and then we want to finish around the Lord's table this morning. So uh, we're just plowing through uh, Acts, and uh, just let me remind you of the outline of the book of Acts. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and that's the key verse, and uh, that's the outline. So let me read Acts 1, 8 and uh, give you this outline here. Here's um, what Jesus said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That was Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the rest of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, there's your outline right there. Uh, Acts 1 through 7 is the gospel in Jerusalem, and that's where it all started. That's where the church was born when Pentecost came. And uh, we'll be in Acts 6 and 7 this morning. When you get to Acts chapter 8, now the gospel is moving from uh, Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. That's chapters 8 through 12. How does that happen? What well, happens because of persecution. Uh, persecution came and the, the believers had to leave Jerusalem, all except the apostles. But as they went, they preached the gospel. And so the the gospel spread to Judea and Samaria and then the last half of the book, uh, chapters 13 through 28, is the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And how did that happen? Well, there's there's where Paul comes in, and uh, Paul takes three missionary journeys, and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. So that's kind of the outline of the book of Acts. It's right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And as I mentioned this morning, we're going to look at Acts uh beginning in chapter 6, and uh, try to take a big chunk of Scripture here, but uh, we'll see if we can get get through the, the text this morning. It was the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who made this statement. 
He said, life isn't worth living. Life isn't worth living until you find something worth dying for. Think about it. Life isn't worth living until you find something worth dying for, some, some purpose and meaning in life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's like, where in the world can you find true purpose and meaning in life? And he writes the entire book, uh, an autobiographical story of him trying to find what is really fulfilling and meaning in life. I don't know if you've ever thought about the question uh, and contemplated this. Is there anything in life worth dying for? Is there anything in this world, in this planet, that I would literally lay down my life for and die for? As I thought about that this week, I came up with a short list of things. Might not surprise you that they're all alliterated, but let me let me share them with you. The first one is freedom. Freedom. Uh, I am so thankful, and we all need to be thankful on a regular basis, not just on uh, Fourth of July and Veterans Day and Memorial Day, for the freedom that we enjoy in our country, for the people who have literally sacrificed their lives and their blood so what we can meet here freely and we can enjoy the freedoms that our country offers. You see, freedom isn't really free. More than 1.3 million men and women have made the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy. And freedom is worth dying for. I've never been to Arlington National Cemetery. Maybe some of you have. It's got to be a sobering experience to walk through that national cemetery where there are 400,000 graves of people who gave their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy. Well, freedom's worth dying for. How about family? Family. In fact, uh, what does Paul say when he's writing to the Ephesian believers? And he's, he's speaking primarily to husbands, but I think it applies to wives as far as our children. Uh, that uh, Paul says to husbands, I want you to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. That's, that's sacrifice, isn't it? <laughs> what did Christ do for us? He laid down his life for us. And Paul says as husbands that we need to be willing to die. We need to be willing to die for our family. We need to be willing to die for our spouse, to die for our children, and we need to be willing to die for our grandchildren. Uh, that's, that's worth dying for, our families. But there's a third thing that I think is worth dying for, and we don't often think about it in our American culture, but it's our faith, our faith. To die for our faith, and down through the centuries, Tens of thousands of people have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's um, just a little summary. This is from Open Doors Ministry that was started by Brother Andrew. Here's the statistic. By the time you go to bed tonight, 15 Christians will be martyred for their faith in Jesus on average. 10 will be abandoned In more than 70 countries around the world daily, this is what happens to Christians. Christians are killed, imprisoned, abducted, sexually assaulted, forced into marriages, or forced to leave their homes or their countries simply because they have chosen to follow Jesus. 
What's worth dying for or faith is worth dying for? I don't know if you remember the story from Columbine um, when that tragic shooting happened in in, uh, in Colorado. And as I researched this story, there's controversy whether this story is even true or accurate or not. But there was a young gal there in Columbine High School. Her name was Cassie Burnell. And when those two shooters came in and pointed the gun at her, they asked her, Are you a Christian? And Cassie Burnell said yes. And they shot her to death for her faith in Jesus. Well, our faith is worth dying for. And uh, this morning in Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at the story of what's recorded as the first Christian martyr that's recorded in the Bible. And we met him last week. His name is Stephen. He was one of those first uh, seven men that they, they chose as as helpers or deacons in the early church because they were doing this daily food distribution, this Meals on Wheels program, and and it was growing faster than they could keep up with. And so they chose seven men full of what? The Holy Spirit and wisdom to help with that ministry. And Stephen was one of them. And so we meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6. But uh, now we're going to meet Stephen uh, and see that uh, he ends up giving his life for the cause of Jesus. So let's look at our outline, and here's the first the thought is Stephen seized. Stephen seized, S-E-I-Z-E-D. Stephen seized. We'll pick it up in uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was working miracles. Uh, God, God had blessed Stephen and the apostles with the ability to work miracles, to authenticate them as God's messengers. And so uh, he was getting a lot of attention, and that brought some opposition. Remember our principle, we shared it a couple of weeks ago, that whenever God begins to work and God's on the move, then uh, someone else becomes very active, and, and it's our enemy because we are in a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 talks about it. And so uh, some opposition rose up against Stephen, against Christianity. Why were the Jews so opposed to this new group called Christians? Well, uh, particularly the Jewish establishment thought that they were destroying Judaism, their religion, by claiming that the Old Testament sacrifices were no longer valid, no longer necessary. So here for thousands of years we've worshipped this way and we've offered sacrifices and now these new Christians are saying, no, we don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah, and he made a once-for-all sacrifice. And uh, that did not go over very well with the religious establishment. And so Stephen uh, faces opposition. Uh, we read about it from uh, beginning in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Remember, first century uh, Roman uh, empire, there were 60 million slaves in the first century in the Roman Empire. And uh, this synagogue must have been made up of some slaves that uh, were former slaves, and now they call themselves the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him to spoke, that as he spoke. 
Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So they come up with some false charges against Stephen, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin council, the the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. It was made up of 70 uh, prestigious members and the high priest. This is the same group that uh, Jesus stood before just a few months earlier, and they turned him over to the, the Roman authorities. And so now he's before the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, and it says they produce false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is seized. Uh, They don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he's doing. They view this Christian movement as a threat, and they want to stop it, and they bring him before the 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 Jewish Supreme Court, and uh, that leads us to our next uh, point, which is Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin. That's uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 50. And uh, verse uh, 1, and we're not going to read all these verses for the sake of time, but just give you an overview. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? So they've got these false, trumped-up charges. They bring Stephen before the Supreme Court, and here's the question, are these charges true? Now, Stephen could have just said, no, they're not. But Stephen didn't choose to do that. Stephen gives a very long sermon, the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts, and it's all about the history of Israel. He goes all the way back to Abraham and the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he gives to these men who would be very familiar with with all of this because they were the Jewish religious leaders, and he gives a whole history of the nation of Israel. And uh, that's verse 1 through 50. We're not going, we're not going to, to read it all, but simply to, to say that um, Stephen gives this overview of the history of Israel uh, verses 2 through 8, he talks about Abraham. That's how the nation started. Verses 9 through 19, he talks about Joseph and 400 years of Egyptian bondage. Um, verses 20 through 44, he talks about Moses. And uh, he talks about the, the mo- life of Moses divided into three 40-year segments. 40 years in the Egyptian palace. 40 years on the backside of the desert in Midian uh, as a, a shepherd with his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. And then at, at 80, at 80 years old, Moses gets the call and becomes the leader of the, the, the nation of Israel, the deliverer. And the last 40 years of his life, he uh, he's the, the deliverer of the nation of Israel. So uh talks about Moses, and then uh, for, verses 45 through 50 talks about Joshua, talks about David, and he talks about Solomon. And he's laying out the history of Israel. One commentator writes, in this longest sermon recorded in Acts, Stephen intended to show that the Christian gospel squared with the Old Testament revelation. 
In view of that, he returned to the beginning of the nation to tell the story of God's work with Israel up until the present day. So he gives this long history lesson about Israel. And then he begins to turn up the heat on the Sanhedrin. And we're going to read Stephen's stern conclusion. Apparently, he never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, because he lets the religious leaders have it. And uh, he speaks truth to power, because he has to realize that this Supreme Court has his very life in, in, in their hands, the ability to, to take Stephen's life. But it doesn't stop Stephen. Let's read uh, the conclusion of his sermon here, and he gets very personal. Here it is, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, you guys are so stubborn. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are hard-hearted. He goes on to say, you are just like your ancestors. <laughs> Disobedient. If we would read the whole text here, that sermon, he's referring to the, how the, the Jewish people were, were disobedient in some ways. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Boy, he's not, he's not getting invited back the next Sunday. <laughs> Don't invite that guy back. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is just getting started. Verse 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Your ancestors killed the prophets who prophesied about the coming Messiah. And then here's the last nail in the coffin, so to speak. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have killed and murdered the Messiah, Jesus. How do you think those religious leaders are receiving this sermon? <laughs> As he comes to that conclusion, their blood is beginning to boil. They are moving from anger to rage because of what Stephen has said. And so that leads us to the stoning of Stephen. Let's pick it up in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. One commentator writes, even before the members of the Sanhedrin dragged Stephen out to stone him, Stephen already has one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. He's already looking up to heaven. He says, look, he said, I see heaven opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As they covered their ears, the Sanhedrin, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. There's 71 of them. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's the first reference to Saul, the Apostle Paul in the, in the New Testament. And now we read Stephen's remarkable prayer. 
It kind of parallels the prayer that Jesus made on the cross when he gave that prayer. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Here's what Stephen prays as he's being martyred for his faith while they were stoning him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep or he died. What a what a remarkable prayer that as Stephen's being executed, he's praying. He's asking God not to hold that against his accusers. Well, that leads us to the conclusion of the text, and it's simply Saul's approval, because we just read in uh, verse 58 that they lay their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul, and then uh, really chapter 8, verse 1, which really should be the end of chapter 7, and Saul approved of their killing him. So here we read about Saul now, and he's like, this is great. Because what's Saul want to do? He wants to snuff out this movement called Christianity. And as we'll see uh, next next week, the, the uh, temperature of persecution begins to get turned up. And now Saul begins to go from house to house. And he's hunting out Christians. And he's, he's dragging them out of their house. And they're putting them in prison. And a great persecution breaks out. And Saul is the leader of that, uh, that persecution. Well, that's the story of Stephen, um, the first uh, Christian martyr, and uh, he gives his life to something that's worth dying for, and in this case, it was his faith. Well, this morning, we want to, before we come to the Lord's table, think about just some four quick life lessons from uh, Acts chapter uh, 6 and 7. And uh, here's here's the first one. The first life lesson is this, is that truth always divides. Truth always divides. Have you noticed that we live in a culture where there's a great division between groups of people? Why is that? Because truth always divides. And that was that was true for uh for Stephen's sermon. I mean, he spoke truth to power and um, they didn't like what he had to say. And they all chose against Stephen. Truth always divides. You can't be neutral when it comes to the gospel. You cannot be neutral when it comes to who is Jesus and the way to heaven. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, says he's either who he claimed to be, the Lord, or he's a liar because he claimed to be God or he's a crazy man. But you can't, you cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You're either, you either believe who he is and what he did on the cross and he's the only way to heaven or, or you don't. Josh McDowell's great book, More Than, More Than a Carpenter. You, you can't just say that he was a, a good, good prophet. Um, and so here's what Jesus has to say. Uh, some strong words in Matthew chapter 10. Beginning in verse uh, 34, this is not our normal picture of Jesus. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. How does that happen? Well, you claim to be a follower of Jesus in the countries of uh, that Islam controls, and uh, your life's in danger. You'll be kicked out of your home. You will lose your job, or they will execute you. Your own family will turn against you to be a follower of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, anybody who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What does Jesus say? I want first place in your life. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to have uh, me as I'm a jealous God and I want first place in your life. And so truth divides, and the Sanhedrin heard the truth from Stephen. They rejected the truth, and what did they do? They, they murdered Stephen. Truth always divides. Secondly, um, is this life lesson, the fear of man is a snare. That's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 Uh, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. You know, Stephen could have, could have, uh, gone a whole different route here. He, he could have kind of backed off and not spoken truth to power and he could have uh, gone a whole different direction because he realizes, hey, these men have my life in their hands. But Stephen did not do that. Stephen did not fear the Sanhedrin. He did not fear man. He feared God more than man. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 28. Listen to the words of Jesus. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of someone who could possibly take your life. We need to what? We need to fear God. And that's where our culture has gone off the rails today. Because nobody, they don't fear God. Uh, most people today are just living for, living for themselves and they, they create and form this God that's, um, the God that they want that will approve their lifestyle and their way of thinking. And so the fear of man is a snare. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, so we make it our aim to please God. That's the aim of our life as followers of Jesus. Does this please God? And of course, how do we know what pleases God? Well, we need to, we need to find out right here. And he's told us, um, the fear of man will, will prove to be a snare. I don't know if you guys do inventory of your days sometimes. I very rarely do it, but, um, there are some days, <clears throat> lay your head down at, at, at night, reviewing your day. And a good question to ask is, Lord, did I please you today? Did my, did my actions and my thoughts and what I did today, did it bring pleasure to you? Did it, did it please you? 
And of course, that's not always possible to do every day 100% of the time. But it's a good question to ask. And uh, uh, not to fear man, but to fear God. Well, thirdly, the third life lesson is this. The highest calling in life is to give one's life as a martyr for the gospel. The highest calling in life is to give one's life as a martyr for the gospel. That was, that was the, not everybody's call, thank, thank goodness, but that was the call of Stephen. That was God's plan for Stephen's life, that Stephen would give his life for the sake and the cause of Christianity. And it's happening every day all around the world. We have in our country a very comfortable Christianity. But in most of the world, it costs greatly to follow Jesus. The highest calling in one's life is to give one's life as a martyr for the gospel. Greater love has no man than this. This is the words of Jesus. This is what he did. Then a man lay down his life for his friends. And as we read through the scripture and as we begin to read through um, the, the book of um, of Revelation and, and what's coming when um, the church age finally finishes this age of, of grace and there's a time coming then when God is going to pour his wrath out on planet earth. And the book of Revelation writes about these three series of seven judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, and life is horrific on planet earth. We read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when the fifth seal was opened, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So what's going to happen? There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be killed for their faith. And here the fifth seal is open, and, and these martyrs are crying out, How long, sovereign Lord, how long and uh, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. There's going to be great martyrdom. And uh, the highest calling in life is to give one's life for the gospel. Well, let's finish on a positive note this morning, and here's the, here's the last one. It's really the title of the sermon, and it's a quote straight from uh, Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 1, our scripture reading this morning. What did Paul say? This needs to be the focus of our life. He says, I, I, I know God's going to deliver me. He's in prison. I know he's going to deliver me. He's either going to deliver me out of this prison, or he's going to deliver me by death. I don't know if you've ever thought of death for a Christian as deliverance. It certainly is. I always remember my dad preaching at my mom's funeral, and she died at the age of 50 and had cancer. And she said, we prayed and prayed and prayed for her healing and deliverance. And today she's delivered because she's with her Savior, Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm in a, a no-lose situation because if, if I'm kept alive here, guess what? I'm going to live for Christ. But if my life is taken for me, 
that's going to be gain. And he goes on to say that it is far better. And then the original uh, manuscript Greek writing, it's a triple superlative. He's saying, if I die, it is far, far, far better. And so God wants us to live with an eternal perspective. If we're here, we need to live for Christ. But if we die, then that is our gain. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. How does John describe what heaven's like? No more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, no more suffering, no more pain. I'll sign up for that. It's far, far better. And so we need to be reminded to live is Christ, to die is gain. I spent 14 hours at Henry Ford Allegiance Hospital this last Wednesday just uh, with Diane through her surgery and lots of time in the recovery room and then up in a a hospital room. And like a lot of hospitals... uh, you know, sitting there in the uh, recovery room and in the waiting room, and I hear this little like lullaby playing. And I'm trying to play this lullaby. Oh, I know what that means. A baby's just been born. And they play this little song every time a baby's been, a lot of hospitals do it, and they play it throughout the whole hospital, and it's like, oh, isn't that cool? Another, another gift of life. I heard it three times in those 14 hours. You know what else I heard? Code blue. Someone is in serious trouble and dying, and we need all hands on deck to save a life. And there you have the circle of life. A hospital where life begins and life ends. And the reality is for all of us, unless Jesus comes in our lifetime No one's making it out of here alive. But the good news is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, I doubt if God's going to call, and I don't know this, but I doubt if God's going to call any of us here this morning to be martyrs, to die for their faith. The question for us this morning might be good to think, would I die for my faith? But maybe the, the more applicable question is this. Will I live for my faith? Will I live for this Jesus? If I'm willing to die for him, will I live for him and prioritize my time, talent, and treasure for the kingdom of God? Stephen did. And Stephen received the ultimate martyr's reward of giving his life for Christ. And uh, our question is, will we, will we be willing to do that, but more so, will we live for him? Let's, let's pray together this morning, shall we, Lord? Thank you for this record of, uh, of Stephen, for a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Lord, may those words describe our lives this morning. And Lord, I thank you for Stephen's commitment and willingness to speak truth to power and to even give his life for the cause of Christ. Lord, we thank you for um, this morning for those that have uh, 
given their lives for the freedom that we enjoy. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives that we would, we would be willing to die for our families. Lord, may we also be willing to die for, for the cause of Christ, but more so may we live for you. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to close our service by uh, contemplating the, the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made, that uh, the sacrifice of your, your son, Jesus, for our salvation. So we thank you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.